Welcome to Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Professor Emeritus of Humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Last year in our first season, I introduced the idea of edginess, the peculiar character of places on the margin of cities. My illustration explored in our first three episodes was Goodman's Fields, the bit of Whitechapel around the Halt undergraduate campus. We found a lot of edginess in that neighborhood, immigrant communities, dairy farms, hospitals, markets, nonconformist chapels, unlicensed theaters, All were there because, for one reason or another, they were best placed near the city, but not in it. In our first four episodes this season, I will look at another neighborhood on the fringe of pre-modern London, the area around Whitecross Street, just to the north of the city wall. Like Goodman's Fields, this is obviously no longer on the edge of London, but plenty of evidence of its earlier marginality survives, and in some interesting ways, it has kept its edginess. In this episode, I will introduce the area by taking us on an imaginary walk past no less than seven cemetery sites. Most are no longer in use, some have completely vanished, and in almost every case, the human remains have been removed. But over the past millennium, hundreds of thousands of London's dead have been placed in these few blocks, at least for a while. Let's begin our walk at the southern end of Whitecross Street. Not as it is now, but as it was before the Barbican complex was built. Until World War II, Whitecross Street ran all the way to 4th Street, ending beside the east end of St. Giles' Cripplegate Church, and until London city wall disappeared at Cripplegate itself. Within 100 meters or so of this point lie no less than four of our cemetery sites. As we stroll to the east, in front of us rises the elegantly curved facade of Moore House, designed by Norman Foster and completed in 2004. It is impressive enough above ground, but even more amazing underneath, where the foundations descend almost 60 meters and a ventilation shaft links to the nearby Moorfield Crossrail Station. The deep excavation was an important opportunity for London archaeologists, and among other things, they found the remains of at least 14 human bodies. The bones are in terrible condition, so worn, broken, and incomplete that they cannot be dated precisely, but they are undoubtedly from the Roman period. Some of the damage is unusual. It seems to indicate that the bodies were not buried, but rather left by the banks of the Walbrook, one of London's lost rivers, and swept to this spot by the current. We don't know exactly where the bodies were originally placed, but it was undoubtedly to the west, well within our chosen neighborhood. This is odd. The Romans normally took burials seriously and often marked the graves with monuments. Whoever disposed of these bodies simply left them by a stream. Exposure is the technical term, but since streams were sacred to native British people before the Romans came, this may not have been casual, but a ritual practice. 
archaeologists speculate that they were combining pre-Roman British water-based ceremonies with the Roman practice of burial away from population centers. I would like to make three points here. The first is that this particular edge of London used to be very soggy. The landscape here was once marshy, dotted with ponds and springs, and cut by little streams which combined into the Walbrook, which then flowed through the center of the city. That watery geography shaped human activity in this area for centuries and will be a recurrent feature of the next few episodes. Second, this spot was as edgy in the Roman period as it was 1,500 years later. The inhabitants of Londinium wanted to remain in contact with their dead, but they didn't want them too close, so they put them in a nearby, uninhabited place. And third, this area, because of its springs and streams, may already have been sacred to the people who lived here before the Romans, and its special status may have survived the conquest. This last point seems particularly important. Roman London, like other provincial cities, was not purely Roman. Its inhabitants retained practices and beliefs from the past and adopted others from elsewhere in the empire. The Temple of Mithras, also by the Walbrook, is a famous example of that cosmopolitanism. Perhaps the culture of Londinium was as much a fusion of diverse practices and worldviews as London culture is now. We will return to this deep continuity in future episodes. Now let's walk back to St. Giles. There's been a church here for over a thousand years. And the one we can see, though repeatedly rebuilt and restored, is one of London's few surviving medieval buildings. Now it is weirdly embedded in the post-war brutalist architecture of the Barbican, but once it was surrounded not by tower blocks and unnaturally rectangular pools, but by a typical English parish churchyard filled with graves and dents with tombstones. Unlike the Romans, medieval Londoners put their dead at the center, not the edge. In a traditional English village, the parish church is at the heart of two communities. It is immediately encircled by the dead, who are in turn surrounded by, protected, and cherished by the living. This geography is a visible emblem of powerful emotional ties. Until the 17th or 18th centuries, one's primary sense of allegiance was not to a nation, a region, even a city. It was to one's parish, at least in part because generations of family were there. That changed in the 19th century. As London's population grew exponentially, as people migrated from elsewhere, as the city exploded in size, the parish became less important, and churchyards became a menace. They were often literally overflowing with bodies, and more and more living people were living around them or even on top of them. At St. Giles's, shockingly, there was a well providing water to local residents amid the graves. The risk of contamination was increasingly obvious. In the 1850s, public health legislation led to a revolution in how Londoners treated their dead. 
Graveyards in central urban areas were closed. A ghostly horde of bodies were exhumed. A huge suburban cemeteries were established to receive them. City churchyards became pocket parks, playgrounds, or in the case before us, the concrete forecourt of the City of London School for Girls. But St. Giles is a partial, wonderful exception, one I discovered by accident. I prepared for this episode in part by walking through the neighborhood I was planning to discuss. And as I tried to find my way to the church through the maze of Barbican walkways, I saw a sign directing me to the St. Giles Columbarium. Well, I didn't know what a columbarium was, and I soon realized that the sign, like all signs in the Barbican, was as misleading in its directions as it was obscure in its vocabulary. But my curiosity was awakened, and my persistence was rewarded. Eventually, I descended what looked like a service staircase to an underground car park or a bomb shelter, and there, where a corner of the churchyard used to be, the parish continues to care for its dead. A columbarium turns out to be a resting place for cremated ashes. At the bottom of that staircase was a simple space with dozens of memorials, all very recent, embedded in the walls. The residential towers of the Barbican surround former residents, just as the cottages of the parish did a thousand years ago. Fresh flowers before some of the monuments, even in late November, showed that this shelter for the dead is a living place. Our fourth cemetery is only a few meters away. It has vanished as completely as St. Giles Churchyard, but was once separated from it only by a wall and was apparently even larger. Burials ceased there in the late 13th century for reasons that will be obvious in a moment. By the 16th century, it had been built over and survived only in a few place names, notably Jewin Street. For several centuries, the Lairstow was a resting place for the dead of London's Jewish community. In fact, until 1177, it was the only Jewish cemetery in England. Until then, Jews who died elsewhere had to be brought here, no doubt at great inconvenience and expense. A spring provided water for a ritual bathhouse where bodies were cleansed and prepared for burial. That building survived for some time after the cemetery ceased to be used and eventually became a dovecote. Small irony here. The word columbarium literally means dovecote. Why was the cemetery closed? Well, in 1290, Edward I withdrew the limited protection the crown had hitherto offered Jews. He owed them a lot of money and they were expelled from England. A few may have lived here secretly over the next few centuries, and at least one was here as a diplomat at the court of Elizabeth I, but a public, legally sanctioned Jewish community only reemerged, invited from the Netherlands by Oliver Cromwell in 1653. Nothing of the Lairstow now remains, but the spot should remind us again of London's long history of tolerance and diversity. Documents show that the land was rented to the Jews by Christian landowners 
who were willing enough to deal with their neighbors. But it is also a reminder of the limits of that tolerance. Jews were excluded from the parish life I celebrated a few minutes ago. They were buried at the edge, not the center. The cemetery had to be rented from Christians because Jews were not allowed to own land. The expulsion was a cruel and violent moment which did permanent damage not just to its obvious victims, but also to the economy and culture of the society that perpetrated it. I made one discovery about this place which surprised and touched me. Archaeological evidence indicates that some bodies were systematically and carefully removed from the cemetery soon after burial. So the Jewish community may have taken at least their recent dead with them into exile. A little postscript. In later times, there was a theater on Jewin Street, as well as a cockpit. The edge of town was a convenient place for disreputable entertainment. But it was also home to the highest of high culture. John Milton lived and wrote some of Paradise Lost in a house on Jewin Street. He was buried in St. Giles. Patreon subscribers can find out more about this in this episode's alleyway. Now let's turn north and walk through the Barbican Arts Complex to find the southern end of the modern White Cross Street. We'll keep walking north, and unless you want to stop for lunch at the street market in front of us, we will return to it later, turn east onto Dufferin Street. We are heading for the trees and greenery visible in front of us, Bunhill Fields. Bunhill Fields was originally Bonehill Fields, but we don't know for sure how old the name is or when the first bodies were deposited here. It may already have been in use as a cemetery when the charnel house of St. Paul's Cathedral was demolished in the aftermath of the Reformation, but it was certainly used then, according to Mrs. Basil Holmes, who published the extremely comprehensive London Burial Grounds in 1896, 1,000 cartloads of remains were transferred here in 1549, and the resulting hill supported five windmills. The ground was expanded to receive victims of the Great Plague of 1665, but may never have been used for that purpose. It certainly became the chief burial ground for London's nonconformists, whose descent from the Church of England meant that, like Jews, they could not be buried in Anglican parish churchyards. So John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, William Blake, my hero, and over 100,000 other people were buried here, the last in 1860. Over the years, Bunhill Fields became a kind of Westminster Abbey for the radical counterculture of London. Those who defied or dissented from establishment values and practices were quite likely to end up here. Edgy in more ways than one. We'll walk north on Bunhill Row for a few meters. Opposite the cemetery is a housing estate, and just before we reach Banner Street, there's a gap in the buildings. We turn through it, down a little staircase, and, almost completely surrounded by this undistinguished piece of post-war rebuilding, is Quaker Gardens, 
hundreds of radical Protestant sects emerged in the religious tumult of 17th century England. But few were as startling in their ideas, as determined and courageous in their membership, or as influential in their contribution to national life as the Society of Friends. Quakers were always distinctive. Without a priesthood, without a liturgy, without churches, without restrictions on the roles of women, emphasizing inner light more than scripture, they were too radical even for most other nonconformists. Refusing to take oaths, pay tithes, or serve in the military, they were not popular with either king or commonwealth, so they often lived as virtual outlaws. It should not be surprising, then, that they had their own burial ground. Even Bunhill Fields was not for them. Between 1661 and 1850, tens of thousands of friends were interred in Quaker gardens. There was only one tombstone. It had a simple inscription, the letters G.F., and lay above the grave of George Fox, the founder of the movement. Even this was controversial. Quakers regarded memorializing the dead as a form of idolatry, so when later generations protested at the singling out of an individual as worthy of special reverence, the stone was removed. It was later replaced by one with a much longer inscription. You can see that embedded in a wall on the west side of the garden. Things get curious at this point, because that 18th century stone gives one 17th century date for Fox's death, while a more modern monument placed when the post-war housing estate was built gives another. I was puzzled by this for some time, especially since I knew that Fox died after having a heart attack while speaking at a meeting. He almost literally preached to death. The date of that legendary episode, I thought, should be undisputed public knowledge so I consulted some Quaker acquaintances who told me that the Friends not only once had their own burial ground, they even had their own calendar. Let's rest for a moment in Quaker Gardens and think about George Fox. He was the son of a Lincolnshire weaver and an early life was a shepherd and a shoemaker. When he was 19, he had a conversion experience and spent the rest of his life as a traveling preacher and healer, not just in Britain, but also in the Americas and the Netherlands. This was not without cost. He was regularly beaten, once with a brass-bound Bible on the steps of a church, and he was imprisoned at least once a year for over a decade. But he was not just an astonishingly original religious thinker and a rivetingly charismatic preacher— he was also a great organizer, administrator, and leader. By the time he died in 1691, there were more than 100,000 Quakers, and over 4,000 apparently followed his coffin to this resting place. There was a whole Quaker community center here beside the burial ground, a school, a library, a dispensary, a coffee house, a place of worship, the Blitz destroyed everything except one wall and the caretaker's lodge, which is still in use as a meeting house. The rest of the cemetery is now a garden with a very eager flock of pigeons and a playground. No idolatry here, but a powerful feeling of peace.
we leave Quaker Gardens to the north, turning left onto Banner Street. It will bring us back to the noise, crowds, and aromas of White Cross Street Market. The range of food available, Spanish, Turkish, Kurdish, Indian, Korean, Caribbean, Brazilian, is a sign of London's extraordinary, persistent cultural and demographic complexity. Despite Brexit, immigration panics, and much media xenophobia, the diversity present 2,000 years ago is flourishing still. We turn right and walk north again toward the bizarre obelisk spire of St. Luke's Old Street. St. Luke's is evidence of an interesting feature of edginess. It's temporary. In 1711, Parliament responded to London's expansion in population and size by authorizing 50 new churches to cater for the spiritual needs of new neighborhoods on what was once the edge of town. In effect, those areas were being officially recognized as part of the city. We didn't get 50, but over the next few years, over a dozen new parishes were organized and some of London's greatest architectural masterpieces constructed. Christchurch Spitalfields, St. Martin in the Fields, St. John Smith Square. St. Luke's was one of the last, designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor and John James and completed in 1733. That spire is a typically eccentric Hawksmoor touch. St. Luke's was a disaster from the start. Built on a marsh, the building began to sink before it was even completed, and bodies buried in the two churchyards, one for the relatively rich, one for paupers, were regularly flooded to the surface. In 1959, after two centuries of running repairs, the building was declared unsafe and gutted. Even that did not stop its slow collapse, which was only arrested after new foundations were laid and a gigantic steel tree-like structure was inserted to support a new roof. Before that could happen, bodies, thousands of them, had to be removed from the churchyard and the crypt. Channel 4 made an extraordinary documentary, Changing Tombs, about the process. You can still find it on YouTube, and I recommend it enthusiastically. Among other things, it shows that our care for the dead and our willingness to devote thought, money, time, and effort to that care has continued into the 21st century and is perhaps as powerful as ever. It also reveals that the edge of London, at least for the purposes of burial, is now Leatherhead in very suburban Surrey. This tour and that mass removal has got me thinking about the complex symbolism of the parish churchyard. Placing the community's dead at the center of the community is a powerful and moving idea. The parish only exists, after all, because past parishioners created and preserved it. They deserve to be at its heart and later parishioners must have felt almost literally rooted to the place by the presence of their ancestors and predecessors. But that rootedness only nourishes you if you don't move. People who migrate must have felt cut off from something vital, and the parish is exclusive as well as inclusive. If you believed the wrong thing or lived the wrong way, 
you were shut out from that community of the dead and banished to the edge, no matter how important and valuable you had been to your neighbors in your lifetime. As we saw back at the Jewish cemetery, there could be tragic limits to tolerance. That's enough for now. Thanks for listening. If you're not sick of the sound of my voice and exhausted by my fascination with London's dead, become a Patreon subscriber and join me for a view of John Milton's corpse. Then we'll stroll down a literal alleyway just a couple of blocks from here to meditate on the life of a great modern priest. Next time, we'll explore another side of this neighborhood, its role in the development of literature and the performing arts in London. That will bring us back to St. Luke's and to Milton, among other places and people. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.